we used to look at customer success, the people that answer the phone when you call. We used to look at them like a an expense to be managed. Like, how do we reduce the role of customer <laughs> success by making the product better? And we had this really monumental and sort of a, like a huge aha that these experts could really actually provide unparalleled value. And so instead of thinking about how do you reduce the role of customer success, we actually said, well, what if we leaned into it? What if we made it a product? What if we made the idea of customer support a benefit subscribing to sort of like an escalated skew? And what we found was that there was a real market for that. Hi, welcome to the Founders with Pet podcast, where I interview amazing entrepreneurs from diverse backgrounds about their journeys, successes, failures, and lessons along the way. Hi, today we have James Helms. He's the Vice President of Design and Product at Intuit. Welcome to the show, James. Glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah. So for those of us who might not know, because it's, you know, it's a B2B product, what does Intuit do? And yeah. So Intuit actually has a collection of products that you've probably heard of. Some of them are B2B and some of them are consumer products too. We are the company that creates Mint and TurboTax, which are two products that we're well known for. And then of course, we also do QuickBooks. And there are, you know, QuickBooks has a whole ecosystem of products from payroll to timekeeping and all kinds of integrations and stuff that go along with that. But, you know, we're focused in the finance and compliance space. And like I said, we serve both consumers and small businesses and, uh, and we support them with expert partners like accountants. And then we also do partnerships with financial institutions and the government and third-party apps and educational institutions to really drive a full spectrum of customer benefit to power prosperity around the world. That's our mission. <laughs> full disclosure, we're a customer of uh, Quick. We use QuickBooks Online for Absolutely. both of my companies. So what does a VP of design and product do over at Intuit? Uh, a lot of things, a lot of things. I've, I've been with Intuit now for seven years. And as I've grown into that role, I have a couple different hats that I wear. I lead a team uh, of about 50 designers and customer experts. So we have uh, a team that's focused on identity, a team that's focused on financial documents and transaction integrations. And then we have a team that's called Customer Connect that's actually responsible for helping us to reach out to, recruit, and then reimburse our, our customers for their time helping us with our products. And uh, so I am a team leader, first and foremost. I'm also a part of the senior leadership team. So I have other peers and I report through the leader of data engineering in our CTO organization. And so we collectively run the core services and experiences of our platform. Then I'm also part of our steering committee and approval committee for the design system, which is actually a cross business visual and code system that we use to tie together our ecosystem of products. And, uh, and then I also help co-lead our design community, which is about 500 designers across the globe, across those different products that I described and here in the US and then also in uh, a bunch of uh, other geographies like Canada and Australia and the United Kingdom and India. Are these all Intuit designers or Intuit employees? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, that's a lot of designers. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's an incredible organization. There's so much talent here. Uh, I feel really privileged to be able to co-lead that group. I've always been impressed by the Intuit uh, you know, design work as well as the 
you alluded to the customer reimbursement program for the research. I, I myself have been kind of the, the recipient of that many times over, especially being at one time, my, my office is very close to the Intuit headquarters. So it was very convenient for them to either have me over or, you know, they're more than always happy to also come over to, to my office. Tell us a bit about that, because I always thought that was a, such a great practice that you don't see in many companies. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, at the core of human-centered design is really starting with the needs of our customers. And so in order to do that, we have to spend a lot of time with our customers. And so we, we have this term we call follow me homes, where we will actually, especially when there's not a pandemic going on, we will go to their houses and we'll watch our customers to understand not just how they use our products, but really how they navigate their lives financially to really understand what role do our products play, but also what are their unmet needs? What are the interesting behaviors that they develop to collect financial documents, to be ready for taxes, for instance, or to sort of manage their budget or balance their checkbook or whatever those different financial goals are that they have? And so we also, we invite customers to be part of research. So we'll go, you know, pull together a research study where we want to get a better understanding of how they're using our specific products, whether that's usability or whether that's just to get an idea of, are they getting the value out of the product that we intend? And, and then we also, we use them really just to understand the mindset of a small business, for instance, or an expert, keeping in mind that our employees aren't necessarily small businesses. And so understanding those motivations takes effort, you know? And so what we realized was this was important. This was a, a full-time need. And so we built a capability around that. So we hired a team to help recruit customers. We built a website to make that possible as a self-service experience that you could reach out and ask for customers to, to interact with. And yeah, you know, like most product experiences that Intuit makes, we discover a need, in this case, an employee need, and then we build services and products around that need. And this is not just restricted to designers, right? And researchers, I, 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 is this correct? Yeah, I mean, we use, we, we, we encourage every single employee in our company to get empathy and to spend time understanding the needs of our customers. And so whether you are an executive, whether you are in marketing, whether you are in engineering, there are lots of different ways that you can interact with our customers. You might listen in on calls into our customer success team. We might teach you how to use our products in sort of like a product 101 environment. But this is one of many ways. And we encourage everybody in the company to look for ways to get to understand our customers so that we can really anticipate how to solve their problems better. Yeah. So how, how many of those do you personally do a year? Oh, I mean, I, ideally, I'm doing at least an hour a month. And, uh, and, I, and again, it, it comes across in many different ways. There are, for instance, when I was, before I had the role that I have now, I was in our, what's called our ProConnect group, which is focused on professional tax accountants. And we had something called Accountant Council. And that accountant council was about a dozen pros from all over the country with different kinds of tax businesses. And they would convene a couple times a year for a couple days, and we would talk about different topics. But I was friends with most of them on Facebook, and I was also in contact with them over email. And so I could ask them questions or hop on the phone with them or hop on a you know, video call with them to get their thoughts on things that we were working on, to share prototypes with them, and really just to pick their brains on what were they struggling with. And, and that's been super interesting. And all of those accountants, by the way, are still sort of my friends on <laughs> Facebook. And so 
you know, not only do I understand them as pros, but I really understand them as people. And it's been interesting to see how they've responded in the last year to, and, and how their businesses have changed and how they have had to change the way they engage with their customers. And, and it's nice to have that window that I don't, that I'm not asking them questions. I can literally just observe their behavior on the internet and see, <laughs> oh, that's what they're doing now. That's super interesting. So that's been interesting to watch. What are some of the things you learned? Well, you know, I do think that there was some reluctance in the in the professional accounting space around moving to the cloud. That's been a long journey for us because we actually have quite good desktop programs for experts and we've been working toward bringing a really powerful online solution to them and we've spent years working on that. And what we realized at some point was that, you know, building a parity product that matched all of the bells and whistles, if you will, all of the rich functionality of a desktop product was a dangerous road because it was a long, long tail of features and functionality. And what we really needed to get to were what, what are the main ways that we could differentiate from a desktop product with an online product. And what we found was being able to connect with your customers virtually, being able to exchange documents and information contextually on a platform with them, that these became really vital when your customer couldn't come see you in person. When you're, when, when the customer that had been visiting your office for 20 years in some cases couldn't make that trip this year, they started to get really creative with how were they going to make that, you know, how are they going to keep their business going? And Intuit was kind of right there at that moment. I think that, I think that journey to the cloud was important for QuickBooks customers that have been using desktop products. I think that the utility of online really accelerated. And, and as we saw, it, it accelerated the way Amazon accelerated the way Zoom accelerated, our online and our online expert platform both accelerated tremendously as a result of the fact that people were sort of forced to come up with new ways to connect with each other. Yeah. In some ways, maybe, yeah, accelerated, discontinuing, kind of severing that tie for those who are still kind of tethered to the desktop version. Yeah. 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 And, and I also think that people that had real comfort in relationships with pros or even doing it themselves. We started offering a product at Intuit called TurboTax Live a couple years ago. And, and in its first iteration, it was just the ability to have a double check on your tax return. So, so you, would, you would use TurboTax as you would expect, which is really geared to be a do-it-yourself product. But then at the end, if you wanted to, you could have an expert kind of double check it for you. And, you know, that was for a fee. And gradually over time, we expanded that offering to really become a relationship with somebody that would talk you through getting started and would help you collect and, and interpret the documents and data that you were gathering. And then, you know, give you confidence that you were going to file a return where you were going to get the best possible outcome on your tax return and without worrying about, you know, doing it wrong and potentially you know, getting audited or anything like that. So there's, there's a lot of confidence that, you know, connecting with an expert through this software can provide. And we had started on that journey. And I think that the, this virtualization of the last year really, really accelerated moments like that when people were trying to navigate all of the different changes in the tax law that have happened in the last two years, plus the fact that we had tax season move a couple months last year and a month this year, plus the fact that we had small businesses that were trying to take advantage of the PPP program and consumers that were getting these checks from the government. And all of this stuff was all sort of related to a complicating of people's finances. And I think that in turn drove a lot of people to look for more expert support. 
I think that's true of any kind of complicated product. I think a lot of you know Silicon Valley companies come from a mindset of you know self serve SaaS, so that there's no they don't want to increase body count and head count. But I think a lot of people would feel would one happily pay, and then also for peace of mind, right? Like setting up. I don't know, a Facebook business page or like you're, when you're starting to spend money on Facebook ads, Google ads, I think having that, that live experience that you have with TurboTax and QuickBooks Live, I think would be beneficial. And because they don't have that, I think there's like all this cottage industry of people who do that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. In fact, that was one of the things that gave us confidence that we were in the right place. One thing was that we, so we used to look at customer success, the people that answer the phone when you call. We used to look at them like a, an expense to be managed. Like, how do we reduce the role of customer <laughs> success by making the product better? And we had this really monumental and sort of a, like a huge aha that these experts could really actually provide unparalleled value. And instead of thinking about how do you reduce the role of customer success, we actually said, well, what if we leaned into it? What if we made it a product? What if we made the idea of customer support a benefit subscribing to sort of like an escalated skew? And, uh, and, and what we found was that there was a real market for that. You know, yeah. we like, like all things, we experimented our way into that and we just saw a really interesting take rate there. And, and then we doubled down. Amazing. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the design process. So like we, we kind of touched on the paid research, but you sure. know, I want to zoom out a bit. And Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, at, at its core, there's sort of three tenants to our design process. And honestly, our design process is the design process. But like I described, we start with customers. We are super clear about spending time with customers, bringing insights back from those investigations, using those insights to, you know, go broad, if you will, and come up with lots of different kinds of ideas around what problems or what ideas could we bring to address the problems that we've observed. And then we take those ideas and narrow them based on things like, can we do that? Do we have a right to play there? Do we already have technologies to help them with this particular idea? And so, you know, we'll narrow based on things like, you know, what are places that we excel? And then we'll go big again in terms of what are all the things about that particular idea that need to be true? And then we'll figure out like, what's the most important thing to learn first? Mm-hmm. And then we'll use that to narrow on our first experiments. And we call that a leap of faith assumption, right? So we want to go find the most critical things that we don't understand and build experiments around those to understand that area as fast and as cheaply as possible. Because as we all know, there's nothing more defeating than spending a year building something and then finding out that customers don't want it and that customers won't do it and stuff like that. So like really looking for ways to test our customers' behavior with lightweight prototypes could be you know, could be things that are in code that are in production, or it could just be something that's offline. That's really easy for us to sort of just test man to man. And then based on what we observe there, then we, then we have a cycle of iteration and, you know, using what we learned from those experiments to then start to give our ideas scale. And, and all along that process, you know, especially I've got teams that are focused in three key areas. And I think this is kind of important. We've got a team that's focused on what I would describe as the customer facing experiences, which are really the UI that our customers are going to respond to and interact with. And then there's sort of a middle layer that we would describe as sort of the data and service layer. And this is how personalization 
how information that we already know about you can be applied to make that experience smarter, simpler, more personal, more automated, and how we can quickly use what we know about you to get to what we don't yet know in order to solve your problem. So that's sort of the middle layer. And then at the bottom, we actually have ways where we've got designers focused on helping to make sure that our processes and our developers are all aligned on that customer benefit that we're trying to deliver for our customers and really thinking about how do we orchestrate and how do we tie the needs of our customers to the processes of our developers so that they are close to and understand how their role and their work impacts the customer experience. And so kind of think like service design, right? Like where you've got sort of a, a customer experience that everybody can sort of see and understand and then going deep sort of behind or backstage to understand what is everybody's role in making sure that customer experience is delivered elegantly. What you mentioned the the role of personalization. I'm less familiar with uh, TurboTax, but can you give us some examples of kind of like the level of personalization that you're doing in yeah. in helping the empathizing with the customer and making it custom tailored to them? Yeah, for sure. And in fact, TurboTax is the best example of this because we have to gather a tremendous amount of information about somebody in order to to file their taxes. The good news is much of that information is the same year to year. And if you come back to us next year, we could recognize you and say, hey, Peck, we remember you from last year. And based on last year, you lived here. You were working here. You had this many kids. You were married. And so we can sort of, we can, we can sort of, play back for you. This was last year. Has any of this changed? Have you had a baby? Are you still married? Do you still live here? Do you still have this job? Right? So you can look at all that stuff and say, yeah, that's all still true. And we go, cool. We're not going to ask you again. Yeah. That's done. Like we're already literally 90% done. Now we can just focus on the things that have changed. So that's one example. Like a, a really simple example is we know you, we have this information from last year, so we're not going to ask from we're not going to ask you for it again if it's all still true. And in fact, we can say has anything changed? And uh, and you can say no, and then we say great. And then we say, well then we just need these three answers. We need to know how much money you made, we need to know how much money you spent on things that could be conceived as, you know, like credits and stuff like that. And then we need to know, you know, a couple other things and we can really sort of like streamline that process for you. So that's one really good example. And then we have this and and we have this technology. It's super interesting. It's very, I think it's very designy, but we call it uh, knowledge engineering and it's a it's one of our artificial intelligence strategies but basically we have a graph that we call a completeness graph and it's really around your per it's it's around your profile it's like what information is there possible to know about you and of that information what do we already know and so we can tell how complete your profile is and say oh the only thing that we don't know is whether or not you're married so we can literally just like, we're not going to ask you any of these other questions, but we are going to ask you if you're married. And then once we know the answer to that, then we're complete. We don't need to know anything else. And then on the other side, we've got this thing called a, a, uh, a calculation graph. And that is, we know that there's, like I said, there's a couple key pieces of data that we need to be able to put into a formula in order to run your taxes. And based on your personal graph, we know that you're married, we know that you've got two kids, that all shapes the calculation graph. And then the calculation graph then asks, all right, well, based on this information, this is the data we need. Like, we're not going to ask you what your spouse makes if you don't have a spouse. But now that we know you have a spouse, we know that we need to ask that set of questions. Right. So that's, a, that's another way where 
where personalization and knowing information about you gives us the ability to streamline an experience to be tailored exactly that you only have to put in information, as much information as we need that we don't yet have. And, and it's just so fun to design for this stuff because there's like all of these, like, how do you visualize that for people? And how do you, you know, how do you help tell some of these invisible stories with design? Mm-hmm. So that becomes a really strong job for designers. And we're not talking now about designing the UI. We're talking about illustrating the flow of data. Mm-hmm. I can imagine this knowledge or AI tool can can get pretty crazy and, and designery as you, you know, and fun. If you can imagine people like offer like you to connect your LinkedIn. If you sign up with your LinkedIn and you say that your job changed, well, then, then you have other pieces of information or you're connecting, you know, your plat, your bank account, and then your, your pay sub changes, you know, you can be very proactive in terms of offering what questions you have. That's right. And in fact, there's key pieces of info, like your W-2, which is the that form that you get from your job every year that is sort of a, a summary of all the money you made and all the money that they in turn withheld and gave to the government already. There is so much information on that, on that W-2 that we can use to know who you are. And by the way, so can anybody else, which is why this is incredibly sensitive data that we are that we take very seriously from a security standpoint all that kind of stuff and like everybody in the world should be super careful about you know how you move your w2 information around and don't you know fax it to people and don't text it to people but you know do so in an encrypted and secure way but that information can be used to really fill out that graph that I described, to really sort of get a sense of, oh, you are who you say you are, and we know this information about you, and based on this stuff, we can compare that address to the address that we had for you, and do they match, and stuff like that. Yeah, so you're right. And actually, LinkedIn is another company, Facebook. These are other companies that have this idea of sort of a a profile that is a graph that's looking for information about you that they can use to anticipate your needs and to connect you with other people and stuff like that. So there's a lot of overlap in, in terms of the way companies collect data with the intent of trying to help you and anticipate your needs and, and help you to you know connect with and get things done that, that, that we can automate now on your behalf. Yeah, thank you. Talk to me about, you know, you, you lead a design team. I, I lead a small design team and, you know, things like uh, engagement, retention. These are all important things in nurturing you know, your team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is one of my favorite parts of the job. I, I'm a huge fan of recruiting designers, of managing and coaching and mentoring designers, both on my team and then also on the outside. I've been pretty active with a program called the Awesome Design People program, which actually started up during the pandemic as a way for designers all over the world to network and look for mentorship. But I'm a huge, huge proponent of, you know, looking for great talent wherever it may be and then pulling them into our really great team. Like we have phenomenal designers at Intuit and specifically on my team. And and then taking those designers and, and really pushing them to have, you know, career changing experiences that that really raise their level. And then also looking for ways to re- you know, position those designers, whether it's elsewhere in my team or whether that's elsewhere in our company to go on and do other great stuff. I don't want to hoard the talent. You know, I want them to come in. I want them to have great experiences. And then I want them to go on to do great things. And that doesn't necessarily have to be on my team. It's great if it can be. And yes, engagement, I think engagement comes in a couple of different ways. We try to keep it fun. Of course, we are 
pushing for next level inclusivity when you think about the fact that we are right now all working from, you know, desks in our houses and my whole team, you know, I'm in Texas and my whole team is in San Diego and Mountain View and I have some designers in Canada and India and I have some of those recruiters that I described are in the UK and Australia and Brazil. So we have we have people all over the place and you know when we when we pull them together we really have to be super thoughtful about how you use whether it's Zoom or other things to really make that experience as energizing as possible and really use it as an opportunity to connect people and celebrate the things that we've been working on and educate. And uh, I don't think we're doing okay. I mean, I, th- I, I think that everybody longs for a little bit of in-person interaction. I think that everybody also has started to feel the benefits of having a couple days at home, but everybody I think would like a little bit more balance of being able to, you know, go away on vacation and stuff like that. Did you already, uh, did you have local offices at all the places that you mentioned? We did. And in fact, yeah, I spent six years working directly in this office here in Texas in Plano. And then each of these teams had been stationed in San Diego and in Mountain View and in, in their, you know, in whatever their global headquarters were. So there was a little bit of, we all used to go to work every day. And that has changed probably, probably forever. You know, we will definitely go back to something of a hybrid where we will spend some time together in person and some time working from home. And I think that's smart for the environment. I think that's smart for people's mental health and for their lives. I think that it can create real balance. And I know that there's like unmistakable energy that can't be created any other way than to spend time with people and really be able to sort of see them in three dimensions and you know, have that kind of a relationship with them. And you can literally have a different kind of conversation and different kind of ideas are exchanged in person. And we know that. So we're looking for ways to sort of harness all of that at the same time. The other thing I I think that's really interesting is that working remotely has also given us more tools and more experience than ever with what it means to potentially recruit a designer from somewhere other than those markets where we are and think about how we keep them close and engaged, even if we can't see them in person every day. So we're exploring what that means for some people being fully remote. And and if that's what works for them, then we'll come up with a way that we can include them as needed. I actually hired a design manager and that's her intent And it's been awesome for her because she's a fan of national parks. And so every, every two or three weeks you find out that she's camping, not, not like camping, not on a tent, but she's uh, got an Airbnb next to a new national park. (laughs) We make a lot of, a lot of jokes around, Oh, where are you this week, Liz? And, but you know, that's really working for her. And it's so cool to see people be able to take advantage of that kind of, uh, freedom and you know especially when that gives them creative energy I think that's really inspiring and I want to create a culture where people can feel like if that's what works for them then they can do that and you know if that works for them and makes them a better designer on my team then awesome yeah we we had a designer who he and his wife had an RV and for the goal for a year was to travel you know, up and down the Americas and then left East West as well. So we, we kind of played that game every time he upped on a zoom call, they would, yeah. the husband and wife would take turns either driving or working. They both had uh, remote friendly jobs. So when she was driving, he was working and vice versa, but it was always fun to like, Oh, so where are you now? <laughs> yeah. That used to be such an extreme point of view. Every, every, I think everybody knows like one person that sort of did that. And you think to yourself, man, and now feasibly most of us could be doing that, you know, like as long as, I mean, and whether or not you have kids, cause I also know a guy who did that with a school bus and five children. So it's, wow. <laughs> it's evidently possible to do that. Whoever you want. 
<laughs> as long as you're as long as you're willing to live in a school bus. I yeah, 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 yeah. I'm past that point. <laughs> I like my creature comforts. You know, customer obsession comes up a lot when people talk about Intuit. So I'd love to kind of hear some stories about designers at Intuit and, and customer obsession. Yeah. Well, you know, I already described that there are many different ways that we encourage our employees to connect with our customers, and that's why. So customer concession is one of our values. We really, we see that, and and we've really sort of verified that, that this matters to the business, that the more we spend time understanding and staying close to our customers and their needs and their behaviors, the more our products that we build and really like the way we market those products and the way we sell them and the way we support them, all of those things improve when we are close to them. And so customer obsession, it's a behavior, right? Like I could sit here and tell you, you know, oh, I'm obsessed. Like I sit at my desk and all I do is stare at the ceiling and think about my customers. And that's not what this is. This is really like curiosity that motivates you to go meet them, to go ask questions about them, to observe their behaviors and ask, why are you doing that that way? You know, like really understanding, you know, the obvious things and then also the less obvious things and just like that sort of active curiosity is so important to the design process. And then, and then I think the other piece of it is like getting in their heads and understanding their mindset. Like I said, we have this program that's really interesting. It's called like adopt a small business. And this isn't just doing a research project. This is you get to know a small business owner. You spend four hours a week with that small business owner, understanding their business, understanding not just how they use our products, but what are their goals for the business and what are they struggling with? And sometimes that'll be a product question, but a lot of times it's, I'm trying to get more customers or I'm trying to find employees or I'm trying to make sure that everybody gets paid on time or I want to make more money. You know, like small businesses are, are, are struggling with a variety of really complicated issues. You're a small business owner, you know. Yes. Right? <laughs> I was thinking about me. <laughs> yeah, a, you know, just a huge collection of sort of questions and concerns and opportunities and where do I start, right? Like there's just so much, which becomes a really rich relationship for our employees to spend time with them and become a little bit of an on-call partner to ask questions around Everything from how do I use this feature to how are other small businesses solving this problem that I have? You guys are small business experts. Like what, what does it look like? And what's cool is that now that you've adopted this small business, their failures are your failures, right? Like you feel it. When they have a bad week, you feel it. When they have a good week, you're elated. You feel that too. And I think that's, you know, once, once you start to lose a sense of where our business ends and their business begins, you really start to get the sense that we're in this for them and they're in this, you know, with us. And, uh, and I think that's super important. I think that's super important on the TurboTax side as well. Like, you know, tax season, we internalize tax season like few companies in the world in terms of we know that it's intense and we are paying attention to the numbers all the time, but we're paying attention to those customers and we're paying attention to when the government makes a decision that changes things for us, not just because, oh, that means we're going to have to change the code, but there's this other thing of like, that's going to create concern, worry, questions. How do we answer this question? Yeah, exactly. Stress. And keeping in mind that like our customer success agents and our tax accountants are a combination of like product and tax experts, but then they also like my tax pros that I'm, that I used to work with, they often describe themselves as like part psychologist. They are listening, like your money is wildly emotional and your finances are 
like incredibly personal and are typically tied to some of like your ugliest habits. And there's a tremendous amount of guilt and fear and blame that goes into people's finances. And that shows up when you're doing your taxes, <laughs> you know, like, like these people, the, these CPAs hear stories that they'll tell you, they won't tell you like the, the personal details, but they'll be like, I have a person who, you know, I found out was embezzling $7 billion a year. Like, I mean, they, they find all this stuff out and you're just like, oh my gosh, it is super interesting how, how money really does tell huge personal stories about people. And, and that's, I, I, th- I find that fascinating about being a designer in the finance and compliance space, because it sounds a little cold. It is tremendously human, right? It is really rich with emotion and opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Your credit card statement is probably one of the most personal yeah. pieces of information. That's right. Yeah. It is, it is a black and white behavioral history. Yeah. Of where you spend your money and where what you, you value. Exactly. That's exactly right. And yeah, it's not just things. It's it's where you spend your time. It's where it's what you think about. And you can use that information for good. So there's it's a cool, it's a cool space. It's been really interesting for me. When my boss offered me the job to go work in professional taxes, I was not sure. It sounded a little boring, (laughs) you know, and it has been anything but. It has been so interesting and so much more rich and sort of, you know, rewarding than I possibly could have, could have, could have imagined. You're also part of the steering committee of the Intuit design system. Talk to us about that. And when was it started? And uh, do you remember a time when life was like without the design system? I do. Yeah. I mean, when I first got to Intuit, now keep in mind, Intuit's been on a journey seven years ago. Really, we were just in our infancy of thinking about the fact that we might be able to, to start to connect the products and some of the customers between the products. We had started to see things like, oh, we have small businesses who pay their employees. And if we wanted to, we could potentially then take that pay and that end of the year W2 that we generate for them, and we could actually pass them onto TurboTax. And that was like a big aha for us. And we looked at an invoice as a consumer experience. Hey, so we're building a QuickBooks product that's designed for small businesses, but the invoice is actually designed for consumers in some cases. And so we started to see a little overlap between the consumers that were using something like Mint and the, and the consumers that were using something like TurboTax and these, and these uh, the small businesses that, that they were their customers. And then what we realized was all of these products are built on different technology stacks. They have entirely different data models and they are really run as discrete businesses. And there's a lot of work that we would need to do to really start to connect these customers and connect these products and make them more obviously related part of Intuit. And so we started under the hood by creating some shared services. We, we broke down some of our architecture and turned that into shared services. And the idea was to reduce the, just these redundant engineering opportunities. And look, let's, let's just create one logged in experience. And then on top of that, then we started to look at, well, how could we start to test this idea of moving customers back and forth between like there's a product called QuickBooks Self-Employed. And what if we could take QuickBooks Self-Employed customers and actually push them to TurboTax? And so we built, you know, we, we built some proof of concept ideas around that. And, and we saw that there was a, we saw that we could actually organically grow the value of an existing customer by having them be part of more than one product business. 
And then at some point, a couple of years ago, we declared that we were going to become uh, a platform. And, and that platform would mean that we were all going to share the same data models. We were going to share the same services. We were going to share the same architecture. We were going to share the same customers. And then we started to look at, well, what kinds of things would help to enable a better understanding from our customers that these things were connected? And we saw that the brands mattered, that we needed to take the logos, for instance, of TurboTax and QuickBooks and Mint and actually give them a similar sort of construct. And so we did that. And then we came up with a common color palette and we came up with some common typography standards. We did a couple things that were really quite cosmetic at the beginning. And then we saw that there was actually this opportunity to do something much more ambitious where we would build shared componentry that you could reuse across our products. So for instance, and this is like always sort of like the easiest example, why redesign buttons over and over and over again when you could just sort of like create a common button standard and then use that everywhere? And so we did that with about like six major components. We figured out that there that, that without a ton of churn, really, or a ton of energy, we could create a shared set of visual components that we could use everywhere, actually well before we had shared architecture. And, uh, and so we did that. And then we saw, and one of, the, one of the magic moments for me was when we actually defined, and, and this, so this is, so to answer your question a little bit, the design system has been on a journey that's about as long as I've been at the company, about six years. And what started very cosmetic gradually became more sort of grid-based and then became more technology-based. And now we've got this really rich point of view. We have a strategy. We have a declaration that the whole company will only use the design system. At least like you, we will start with the design system. If you want to go make something that, that, that deviates from the design system, that's fine, but you have to, there's like a very explicit innovation path of like, go do what you want to do, but you have to tell us that you're doing that, that I'm going to go build something different. And then you have to bring back what you did and what you learned so that if you've by any chance stumbled across anything that we can use or that might improve the design system, then we can actually benefit from that learning. And, uh, but one of the things that's really interesting about the design system, it's been super powerful as a way to bring the community together. We brought designers from every business unit together to do some of that first shared component work. And what we found was it was actually a great way to build relationships between designers that wouldn't meet each other otherwise. And now we had like, if you worked on the design system, you suddenly knew a whole bunch of people across into it. And so we saw that there was real power in just bringing them together. And we started to use the design system as a way to approve important work that would be felt by all of our customers. And we used it as a way, like I said, to as a mobility opportunity for designers that needed to do more. And it's become a great path to leadership for designers in the team. So, it, you know, the, the design system really had sort of like a very explicit reason for being, which started with our customers and wanted to make something that would, you know, encourage them to engage with more of Intuit over time and give them confidence that we were all using their data in the same way. But it ended up also being not just an efficiency play for our engineering organization, and it, and it is, but, but a really powerful community force for the design organization. As we're wrapping up on time, I'd love to, is there anything we'd like to uh, promote to, to designers who are listening? <laughs> I mean, we're, we are hiring. We've got two things going on right now that I think are super exciting. One, we are opening additional offices in New York and LA to expand our footprint as we move back to sort of this hybrid model of 
people that'll work sometimes in the office, sometimes out of the office. We have lots of roles open for the design organization and actually for the product organization in general. And we have a website that's super easy, careers.intuit.com. <laughs> and there's, there's tons of everything from design research roles to product design jobs, service design jobs, all kinds of, all kinds of stuff. So if anybody's interested, they should check that out. And then the other thing is that we've been doing a lot of relationship building with students across some different organizations. I've built a great friendship with the professor that runs the service design program at Savannah College of Art and Design. He's become a friend and his program is outstanding. And those students are really outstanding. And I'm looking forward to building a deep partnership with them. And now I've started to build similar relationships with, there's a great design program here in Dallas with SMU's uh, Masters of Arts in Design and Innovation. That I got to be the, I got to be their designer in residence for a semester and got to meet the woman who's the director of that program. And those are some of the best students I've ever, I've ever seen. And they're like super smart and they're they, they have them tackling these enormous and interesting problems here in Dallas. Uh, the most recent one was around policing. So that was pretty cool. And now I've got, I've actually got a call later this week with the woman that runs the master's program at the University of Texas. And I'm excited to meet her. It sounds like they've got a really cool program going on. So anyway, I'm all about connecting with great design programs across the country. And that's another thing that I just, you know, I'm, I'm anxious to learn from them and I'm anxious to connect with their students because I really do believe that as we think about what are the future skills of designers, they're going to come out of these programs. And, and so, you know, understanding who's teaching what is really powerful because we're always looking at what are the skills for the future for design and who's doing that. So that's a really exciting space for me. Well, thank you so much, James, for your time. You've been very gracious. So we'll let you enjoy the rest of your Friday afternoon. All right. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Pete. Thank you, James. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Founders with Peck. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel. If you leave us a review, I'll be sure to shout it out. And if you have any questions, you can tweet me on Twitter. 